0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. This is Barry Botino, Associate Editor at Safety and Health, and with me, as always, are my fellow Associate Editors, Kevin Druli and Alan Ferguson. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hello, how are you? Doing great. As we welcome you all to our November 2023 episode, which is number 45 in the history of this podcast, we also want to thank you for spending some time with us. A special thank you to all the awesome safety professionals that we met in New Orleans at the NSC Safety Congress and Expo last month. We had a great time checking out all that the event and the city of New Orleans had to offer, including the puppy petting station, of course. But most importantly, all of the terrific keynote presentations and the wide variety of unique and informative technical sessions. We hope to see you all next year when Congress and Expo takes place September 16th through 18th in sunny Orlando, Florida. We know many of you have had a unique journey into the safety profession and we want to hear about it for the MIFE story feature in our magazine. Submit your personal stories about how you got into the safety field by emailing us at safehealth@nsc.org. at nsc.org. To check out past my story entries and catch up on all the news from around the safety world, you can visit our website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com. In this month's podcast, Kevin will share the details of his feature story on common electrical errors in our deep dive segment. We will also be joined by TJ Lentz from NIOSH, who will discuss chemical safety in the latest installment of our five questions with interview segment. And we'll also share some lessons from the past month in our aptly named What Did We Learn? segment. Is everybody ready? Then away we go. Each month here at On the Safe Side, we examine a feature story from the latest issue of Safety and Health magazine, which we call our Deep Dive segment. In our November issue, Kevin writes about five common safety errors in electrical work, along with how to solve them. One expert in the story even discusses the dangers of overconfidence, which can lead to complacency. Kevin, could you please ease our listeners into the shallow end of the pool for your latest deep dive? Well, to start, thank you, Barry Bettino,
1: for that kind introduction. There's an old schoolhouse rock ditty about electricity, and short of attempting to recreate it, I'll say that a reimagined, grown-up occupational safety version would communicate this. Electricity likely is present and presenting a hazard wherever people are working. And we know electricity is something that we can't smell, taste, or see, but we also know its hazards are ever-present. And while those hazards might vary based on the exposure, the experts who spoke with us for this story, Jim Phillips, Zahir Juma, and Lee Marcheseau, agree that one theme connects erroneous electrical work practices. That is the fact that a sense of overconfidence oftentimes lead to complacency. There is this quote from Jim Phillips, and he's helped develop numerous U.S. and international electrical safety standards, and it helps set up the magazine story as well as this segment. Jim says, quote, some people will think that, oh, this task is just going to take a minute. I forgot to finish something. They don't think it through. Electrical safety doesn't care about how long you're on the job. Incidents can happen whether the task takes one minute, one day, one week,
0: unquote. Kevin, you mentioned treating electrical work casually. What are ways to correct this behavior?
1: The first thing to know is that this behavior is common even among seasoned electrical workers. And that's the experience of Zahir Juma, who's an electrical engineer for training provider eHazard. And he says, quote, we observe people treating electrical work like a run-of-the-mill task, often unaware of the electrical hazards. Others appear knowledgeable but do nothing to control the risk of electrical injuries driven by the belief that they're working safely and thus immune to injury. So this reality often creates concerns among experts as to whether employers and workers are in compliance with a critical part of NFPA 70E, which is a consensus standard that addresses electrical safety in the workplace. Within NFPA 70E, it states only that a qualified person can perform electrical work. We're so often discussing small and medium-sized employers, and make no mistake, Zaheer said, the organizations in this category really can find it difficult to implement an electrical safety rule or, or just a plan because they might not have safety pros or subject matter experts within their staff. But again, even the larger organizations, because of the complicated nature of electricity and electrical work, can find this a challenge. So what are some solutions to this? For Zahir, it's about reevaluating the safety management system at your workplace, and something that he suggests is combining written programs, training, and periodic auditing. Zahir very much is an advocate for more formalized education about electrical safety, whether that's at a community college setting, at a university, or even employer programs, or easily accessible self-study programs.
2: Kevin, can you take us through some highlights of the other common mistakes discussed in the story?
1: Absolutely. And one of them really correlates with what we just discussed. And that's the idea of institutional or tribal knowledge creeping into an organization's electrical safety program. What experts often find as a source for this issue is that organizations may rely on one experienced employee to develop his entire electrical safety program. And with that, there may then be the issue of tunnel vision, where this worker who created and refined this program truly is only working from the experience within that organization. So they might not have attended trainings to augment their knowledge and might also lack the network of subject matter experts to consult for information or to conduct a third-party review of the program. To remedy this, and again, I think the three of us have heard lots about this concept at Congress and Expo, organizations really must challenge the idea of compliance-driven training. It's not just about sending a worker to a day-long or week-long training to check off a box. They must understand and be motivated to seek continuous improvement to help drive down electrical fatalities and injuries. Along with training then, organizations should implement job observations, refresher training, and electrical incident investigations of their programs, among other concepts. Some other takeaways are to make sure that your organization complies with OSHA standard on electrical power generation, transmission, and distribution, and that's 1910.269. This standard requires that workers exposed to arc hazards uh, should wear arc-rated PPE, And it also states that any worker exposed to electrical arc or fire hazards should avoid wearing clothing that could ignite or melt onto their skin. Staying with this topic of arc hazards and arc flash, it's also important to be mindful that you should not rely on equipment doors as an effective boundary to arc flash unless that equipment is specially designed. Jim Phillips had spoke of several past tests and trainings in which even smaller arc flashes blew equipment doors off just because of all the pressure that's behind them. As we tie up, there's one additional note to circle back about training and and risk assessments and institutional knowledge. And that's it. A lot of experts spoke about how workers really often become inherently focused on the task at hand, just what they're doing at that given moment. And for that reason, they might lose sight of other potentially hazardous scenarios that are at play in in the job that they're doing. So with that, it really puts an impetus on evaluating the training program and, and the risk assessment process. And with these assessments, you need to know that they shouldn't just identify the hazards. They also should identify the need for any protective measures that could be put in place.
0: Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for your work on this story. To read this feature, as well as other news from around the safety world, please pick up the November issue of Safety and Health Magazine or visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Every
2: safety professional has a unique story. So what's yours? Safety Health Magazine wants to hear about your path into the occupational health and safety field for our My Story column. You can share your safety origin story by sending a submission to safehealth@nsc.org. Chemical safety remains a significant concern for workers, as we found out once again during Safety and Health's OSHA Top Ten presentation at the NSC Safety Congress and Expo in October. During that presentation, Hazard Communication stayed at number two among OSHA's most cited standards for 2023. With us to talk about workplace chemical safety is TJ Lentz, elite health scientist for NIOSH. TJ, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
3: Thanks, Alan. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, This is a topic which is kind of near and dear to my heart, having uh, worked on this for almost uh, three decades. So I I still wouldn't consider myself an expert, but um, it's a topic that uh, deserves a lot of attention, I think.
2: As a starting point, what are some important basics to know about chemical hazards and toxic substances and the threats to worker health they may pose?
3: That's an excellent question, Alan. One of the basic premises of toxicology is that chemicals can have different potencies, meaning that some can cause health effects at very low concentrations. That means they're more toxic. And then for other substances, other chemical substances, they can seem more inert. And that means it only at very high exposures or concentrations or, or doses that are absorbed into the body do you see those health effects. So I think that's really important. Also, the understanding that some chemicals can act more quickly or cause what are known as acute effects upon exposure. And that means you'll see something occurring in the body almost immediately. You'll have a reaction such as coughing or eye irritation, eye watering or burning on the skin, watery eyes. For other chemicals, you may not sense anything happening at all, knowing you're working with a chemical and it may take years until after that initial exposure or a long duration of exposures to see those health effects. And some of those might include heart disease or obviously cancer takes a long time. That's one known as a chronic effect and reproductive effects as well. And then finally, one other concept, this is not the final concept, but another important uh, characteristic of chemical exposures is that the way that people and workers are exposed to the chemicals can influence the health effects, whether it's ingested or swallowed, or whether you come into contact with a chemical by breathing it in. And then finally, another source of exposure is having direct contact with the skin. It can either cause a effects immediately on the skin or be absorbed and then taken into other parts of the body. So I like the quote by the um, the 16th century philosopher and physician known as Paracelsus, and he said, the dose makes the poison. And so that's a way to understand that different chemicals can act very differently. That stuck with me from from my limited toxicology training years ago.
0: TJ, we're curious, um, you know, for our listeners' sake, are there industries where these chemical hazards can be more common?
3: Yes, Barry. I would say there are certain industries and and occupations where chemical exposures are more prevalent. I would like to point out, however, that in the EPA inventory, it's estimated that about 85,000 chemicals or, or more are always being introduced are currently used in commerce across a variety of industries and occupations. So this can include anything from pesticides in agriculture and landscaping, certainly medicine and pharmaceuticals in the healthcare industry, solvents, paints, adhesives across any number of automotive industries, construction, production chemicals in manufacturing, flavorings in food production, cleaners, disinfectants, detergents in service industries like facility management, janitorial and housekeeping, and then food and beverage establishments as well. So I guess that was a roundabout way of answering your question. Actually, chemical exposures occur in just about every sector of our economy. So it's important to be aware of that. Sometimes we don't even realize we're coming into contact with chemicals. We just consider them basic everyday products that are important for us to do our job. But in fact, they are chemicals essential to do the work that we do. In some cases, coming into contact with them day after day can have some serious consequences. So it's important to have that awareness about what it is we're using and how we can protect ourselves from those.
1: How can employers and workers limit their exposure to them and where do respirators fit in?
3: Great question, Kevin. Certainly, I think awareness is one of the most important things. Training workers and everyone who comes into contact with the chemicals they're using is essentially a basic place to start. Using chemicals only as they're intended, also trying to limit your exposure as much as you can. You mentioned respirators, and that is certainly an important element in protecting workers, although that's not what we would necessarily go to as our first step. A concept that's really important to workplace safety and health is known as the hierarchy of controls. And this is what places the highest importance on the mechanisms for addressing hazards or potential hazards. And so at the top of this hierarchy would be substitution or elimination of a potentially really hazardous uh, chemical. If you can substitute or eliminate a chemical from a process, that would certainly protect the workers and the safety and health of those who come into contact with the process. If that's not possible, and in many cases it's not, we implement engineering controls, and that is a way to drive the exposures down by putting in ventilation to to keep airborne concentrations down and there's also administrative controls for keeping workers out of areas where there might be higher chemical exposures and then finally at the very bottom of that hierarchy of controls is personal protective equipment such as respirators chemical protective clothing goggles and other equipment that's been approved for those uses so in many cases those are the only way to protect workers when we're not sure that engineering controls are working properly and there's a high possibility for airborne exposures that will continue to be at significant concentrations or there might be splash hazards when you need to wear chemical protective clothing. So I expanded my answer a little bit beyond your talk about respirators, but those are all some of the mechanisms that workers can be protected and that employers can implement some of these hierarchy of controls to ensure that the best safety and health practices in their workplace. So, we aren't looking to turn this into advanced placement chemistry,
2: but which additional ideas or vocabulary should workers be aware of?
3: I really appreciate that question, Alan, because I I didn't take advanced placement chemistry, and it's, it's probably a good thing I didn't. So, I think that hazard communication is a really important concept. This goes back to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's Hazard Communication Standard. This is essentially what established the need for safety data sheets and labeling of chemicals in the workplace. That's a great source of information for how to handle the chemicals, what type of personal protective equipment to wear, what type of engineering controls, what type of medical precautions might be needed should you come into closer contact with those chemicals. So safety data sheets are great. And so SDSs certainly, hopefully everyone understands what that means. Hazard communication, again, that's essential as well. I think workers can take some precautions themselves by following some of the guidelines for working safely, understanding the chemicals they're using. It's basically a right to know concept as well. So if if you're working with something, I, I think you need to know what the health effects could potentially be, and that will help you to protect yourself accordingly.
0: TJ, our listeners always appreciate trying to find more knowledge about a topic. So if you would, please, are there resources that you would share with our audience that they can learn more and gain more knowledge about this?
3: Yes, Barry. There's actually myriad sources of of information, which can also be kind of confusing at times. You don't know which ones are, are more credible. I, of course, would be biased to my agency, NIOSH, with 50 years of occupational safety and health research as the premier research agency in the U.S., feel like we place a high standard on the information that we have. So the NIOSH Chemicals Resource Directory is a, a great landing page on managing chemicals in the workplace. So if you start there, there are certainly a, a lot of areas you could go from there. The EPA also extends beyond the workplace into public health and the environment, also has lots of information about chemical safety. That's also a great source of information. And of course, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, Chemical Hazards and Toxic Substances, Safety and Health topic page is a great place to look. And that would include lots of information on even on specific chemicals, which NIOSH also has specific chemical safety and health topic pages. But OSHA also talks about the hazard communication standard and the elements included in that and how workers can find more information on the safety data sheets I explained earlier. These information sources aren't just limited to these three government agencies. I'd also advocate for the National Safety Council. I uh, have found some great resources there. Very brief, some fact sheets, a checklist on uh, chemical safety management. And that's sometimes the the best reminder, the the best way to convey information uh, concisely in plain language so that people can understand how to protect themselves. NSC also has a chemical safety, uh, five-minute safety talk. And I like these too because my attention span can can be very brief sometimes. And uh, five minutes is sometimes a good time to present that information. And it also, it conveys the most important information as well. Other credible agencies include the American Industrial Hygiene Association, which also ha- provides these types of resources, and the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. But uh, at the risk of if I continued to go on, then it would just get more confusing. So I'll limit it to those. If you have questions about any of those, I would hope you would reach out to me or my colleagues at NIOSH, would be happy to direct you to more information on, on chemical safety topics as well.
2: Well, thank you so much. This was fantastic. And thank you so much for your insights, TJ. And once, thank you once again for joining us on the safe side.
3: Well, thank you, Alan, Kevin, and Barry. This has been a real pleasure for me. And um, I hope you got some valuable information out of it.
0: Who would have guessed reading and writing would pay off? That question was posed by legendary TV philosopher, Homer J. Simpson. And it's a perfect introduction to this month's What Did We Learn? segment. To get things started, uh, along with learning this month that no other gumbo will ever compare to New Orleans gumbo, I also learned about a new tip sheet from OSHA, which I'm hoping that some of you had a chance to read about on our website. And that is a tip sheet related to preventing heat-related illness during pregnancy. And OSHA says that, Pregnancy increases the risk of heat stroke and heat exhaustion on the job because the body must work harder to cool itself down. And pregnant workers also are likely to become a little bit more dehydrated, which OSHA says is a primary contributor to heat-related illness. So that tip sheet contains some important information about not only symptoms, but also how workers can work with their employers to find accommodations, uh, such as additional bathroom breaks, and also some other strategies to ward off heat-related illnesses. Kevin, I'm going to go to you next. What did you learn this month?
1: Well, as with you, Barry, I learned about the, the goodness, if not greatness, of Cajun cuisine. I'd, I'd had it other places, but not in New Orleans itself. So I think just about each meal, Outside of breakfast, maybe that's a little bit too early in the day for alligator sausage. But mo- most meals, I was able to have some sort of Cajun delicacy, so it was nice. I try to, pun intended, try to sink my sink my teeth into kind of the culture of what's at play in these different cities that, that host Congress. So, I think greatness is
0: a fair word, Kevin.
1: Sure, no, absolutely. So yeah, we ate maybe ate at some of the same places. I don't know. Just always do enjoy the the energy um, of of Congress. So didn't so much learn about that insofar in as have been part of several of them in my time with the council, but did at least learn that the, the Ernest and Montréal Convention Center is quite navigable. Um, the others certainly have been too, but I believe Alan and Barry and I separately were talking about this, just how while we're out and about on each of the days of the session, the kind of the main spots that we are, and that's the the NSC booth and in, in and around the media room and the speaker ready room and just the other rooms where we're helping to moderate some of these other technical sessions everything seemed to be a pretty easy walk and you know you maybe spend the first half day getting your your bearings and your wits about you but then as the rest of the week progresses you really feel like you're knowing where you're going to the point where as Barry was saying you know we were there just a short time but you feel like if you were to come back the next day you'd kind of have it on autopilot. So it was nice just to see not only the convention center in New Orleans, but certainly the the surrounding
2: areas uh, about town. Alan, how about you? Yeah. Um, so speaking of New Orleans and speaking of Congress and Expo, we heard from OSHA personnel during a technical session on Monday that the updated hazard communication standard is going to be coming out in the coming months. And now we, we had an idea of that because it, appeared on the um, White House's Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs website as being under review. Now, those reviews, no one really knows how long they're going to take, but again, OSHA officials said that the updated HASCOM standard should be coming within uh, a couple of months. Also appearing on the OIRA website is a proposed rule and updating OSHA's emergency response standard. Uh, They want to do things like um, kind of update with safety and health practices that are already accepted by the emergency response community and kind of have a more comprehensive emergency response standard and also kind of, think, throw in some performance specifications of protective clothing and equipment.
0: Well, thank you both for those lessons, gentlemen. Each month, we ask you, our listeners, to think about a lesson you learned. And make sure you share that knowledge with someone else so you can make an impact on others.
1: Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this month's episode. We know that your time is valuable, and we appreciate you spending just a bit of it with us each month. We encourage you to visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com podcast to check out all of our past episodes. That includes a special Live from Congress episode we recorded in New Orleans last month with our special guest, Jane Terry. National Safety Council Vice President of Government Affairs. We'd also appreciate you rating, reviewing, or spreading the word about this podcast. To find stories such as my feature on common electrical safety errors and the latest news from around the safety world, check out safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on your favorite social media channel. Original music for this podcast was composed by Steve Maslin. Thank you so much, Steve. And a big thank you to all of our NSC cohorts behind the scenes who make this podcast go. We'll be back next month to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. In the meantime, please stay on the safe side.